Join us now for Education Matters, a weekly look at the real people and real stories in education across North Carolina. Welcome to another episode of Education Matters presented by the Public School Forum of North Carolina. I'm your host, Keith Poston. This week I'll be talking one-on-one -on -one with State Superintendent of Public Construction, Mark Johnson, about his first months on the job. We'll also talk with the regional head of PNC Bank and a top Duke University researcher about the importance of early childhood learning. Like every week before we tackle our main topic, we open with our segment we call Headlines. It's a quick scan of education headlines across North Carolina and the U.S. The pace was frenzied this week at the General Assembly as the crossover deadline arrived. Crossover is the date when most bills must pass at least one chamber and cross over to the other chamber if they're to be considered this session. Several education bills were brought forward to beat the clock, including some fairly contentious charter school bills. One will allow charters to expand enrollment much faster than current law allows without express state approval, while another bill would allow charter schools to reserve half of its slots for children of employees of private companies that invest in the school. Another House bill gives authorization for two small towns outside of Charlotte, Matthews and Mint Hill, to create their own schools separate from the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system to be run by for-profit charter school operators. Now, it's worth pointing out that all these efforts would still be funded by North Carolina taxpayers. One bill we've been discussing for weeks finally saw action. HB 13 was passed by the House in February to amend the K-3 class size cap included in last year's budget that school leaders have said would lead to thousands of special subject teachers like art, music, and PE losing their jobs. An amended version of HB 13 moved through the Senate that delays full implementation of the hard class size cap for another year with a pledge to deal with funding special subject teachers next year but without, without actual funding in the bill. That price tag has been estimated at approximately $325 million to save those jobs in 1819. Next up is an expected concurrent vote by the House. The Senate acted after weeks of protests by students, parents, teachers, and other public school advocates. Now, while introducing the amended HB 13, Senate Education Committee Chairman Chad Barefoot blamed school superintendents for the delays and accused them of what he called political gamesmanship and not providing information requested. Now, finally, two bills that would expand the appointment powers of our first guest, State Superintendent Mark Johnson, moved through the House. The first would create a new Office of Early Childhood Education reporting to the superintendent. The second would allow the superintendent to use about $700,000 in salary from currently vacant positions in the department to hire his own staffers without input from the state board. We'll ask Superintendent Johnson about both of these bills when we talk next. Now remember, you can visit the Public School Forum's website at ncforum.org, click Education Matters, and read more about each of these headlines as well as other topics we cover each week. As I said at the top of the show, we have a special guest with us today, and he is the State Superintendent of Edu Public Education, Public Instruction, Mark Johnson. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. It's just your, your, your first visit to Education Matters yes. since being elected. I, um, you were sworn in January 2nd, so I guess you've, you, you've passed that mythical 100 days plus. <laughs> um, so, you know, what's been going on? I mean, you've, uh, I seem like every other day I see another uh, news release or clip that you're out somewhere visiting schools. Well, it was one of my biggest priorities campaigning was to let people across the state know that the Department of Public Instruction in Raleigh needs to truly be a place in Raleigh that supports schools all across the state, whether it's rural, urban, cities, farms, uh, the coast, the mountains, uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, way, uh, you know, everywhere, right. Right. Uh, including, uh, including the people in the building. And we all need to get out there and recognize that 
we're not there to be the people to tell school systems what to do. Part of our job is the compliance, uh, but we should be going at it with the mindset of how do we help you comply with the regulations that are put out there? How do we support you to overcome the challenges that you're facing? Now, you've been talking to teachers. Did they, they have this, um, you know, the old axiom, we're from Raleigh and we're here to help. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and what, what are they telling you? What are the teachers, what are the principals telling you? Uh, the reaction has been so fantastic. It has been uh, one of the best parts of my job. It's an honor and a privilege to be the statewide representative. It is the best part of the job to get into the schools and visit with the students, visit with the teachers. Uh, they have been very appreciative that someone's coming from Raleigh sure. to all parts of the state to hear what's working well and what's not working and bring those concerns back to Raleigh. Right. Now, um, you know, I mentioned um, about the, the two bills, and one mm -hmm. I want to meant, ask about is about the, uh, the staff positions. Now, right. before you even took office, you, you found yourself <laughs> kind of involved in a little bit of a power, power struggle. We had your, uh, your friend, Chairman Bill Kobe, on um, when the lawsuit was filed, and uh, so our viewers are aware of that. Um, um, tell us, if you can, I know this is still a pending lawsuit, mm -hmm. why you believe um, that the law that was passed in December shifting responsibility from the state board uh, to your office is the right approach. Well, it's the right approach because I'm the person who's there every week uh, attempting to run the day-to-day -day of the department. Uh, I should have the authority to hire my own chief of staff. Right. I should have the authority to hire my own deputy, my own CFO. Uh, that's authority that I'm probably the only council state member, probably one of the only elected politicians across the country that I don't even have the own, my own authority to hire my own chief of staff. Right. Uh, that's a position I've done without for most of my tenure as superintendent, and I still have uh, no process from the state board on how I will get one in the foreseeable future. Uh, I would point you to, and you might be able to link this at some point, uh, to where I filed uh, my affidavit. Oh, we can put, uh, we'll put it on the website. Please uh, do. Yeah, absolutely. That is out there. It's public record. Uh, it, it details what has happened over the, over the past few months uh, and, and really goes into detail about how uh, the processes have been slowed down, how I have not been able to bring in people that really support my vision right. uh, of being the people in Raleigh who support schools, not the people in Raleigh who tell schools what to do. So is that, is, is that, so that, that, that one I mentioned in our headlines, the, uh, the idea of reallocating some money, is that, is that partially to sort of help you get some people that you need um, to, uh, to do it? Is that, is that like how to, you see it? I think that's how I see it. Yeah. I, I appreciate the, the NC House putting that through, and I, I hope the NC Senate uh, will, uh, will go ahead and approve it as well. That's actually taking funds that are already at DPI right. uh, that are not being used. Those are vacant positions. Some of those positions have been vacant since 2015. I, I can immediately take those positions and fill them in with some key people uh, to start being that department that more effectively, more efficiently uh, supports schools in the districts. And also one of my main goals is when I'm on the listening tour, hearing what's working well, taking what works well, bringing it back to Raleigh, and scaling it across the state. We right. need, we will need to, to refocus the Department of Public Instruction on being a clearinghouse for these great ideas and getting the support out into the districts to, to make them happen. All right, let me shift gears. Um, no question, the biggest news covered story in terms of education in the last several weeks, a couple of months, has been HB 13. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the concerns that it was going to cost a lot of jobs out in the uh, field, uh, specialty teachers. You released a statement supporting this uh, uh, amended HB 13. Uh, uh, what is, your, I guess, what's your take on, um, on, at least on the issue itself and, and on the compromise? I, I commend the NC House, the NC Senate, 
and especially the superintendents across North Carolina. They worked very hard. Um, we had our people, uh, legislative directors, in the General Assembly building too working on this. Uh, this is a good compromise that puts students first. Obviously there's going to be more work that needs to be done and what we really need to start talking about as a group is transparency. We need to update the business systems that run our schools. We have superintendents have to deal with three different business systems. HR is on one system. Payroll is on another system. Licensing of teachers is on another system. So the amount of effort it takes for a superintendent or even someone in the General Assembly to try to get an accurate count of how many art teachers are, in there, are there in this district or how many PE teachers are in this district, we're having a really hard time getting the accurate count, the accurate class sizes. So I will be using this as, as a real push for my, one of my top priorities, which is transparency. When we stop arguing, over what the facts are, we can all come together well, do you, and start uh, talking uh, about I mean, the look, I got to ask you though. I mean, um, I mean, do you think superintendents were playing games and hiding information? And that was that was kind of a that was a little, that was a pretty loaded charge from the that, from Senator Barefoot. That's tough, and I think I think there's a level of trust that has to be built up uh, between the the NC Senate and the superintendents. And I am happy to start building that bridge. I think that is something that is pre my tenure that I've walked into, sure. but is absolutely a priority of mine to you know, let everyone know we're on the same page. We all, want, we all want what is best for students and teachers, and together we can move forward on this. I think that's a good, that's a good point. having transparency is going to be the first step in that direction. It makes a lot of sense. All right, last questions um, uh, before we run out of time. You've been focused a lot on uh, early childhood education Absolutely. literacy. In fact, we had, a, we had a great picture of you doing some reading to oh, some good. kids, uh, which I know you do at home too, but uh, you've been seeing some kids. Tell us why that's a focus for you. Look, talking about at home, I have a four-year-old daughter, and my four-year-old daughter's She's already got a leg up when she enters kindergarten because either my wife or I or someone reads to her every night and she has letter comprehension. She, has, she knows how to hold a book. She knows the way a book works. Unfortunately, too many of our students are entering kindergarten either two or even three years behind. Most teachers across the state are doing their job. Right. They are successfully growing students one year for every year they are in the classroom. But when a student unfortunately comes into kindergarten two or three years behind where we need them to be, then it's that much harder to get them to third grade reading grade level. In some cases, almost impossible. Right? Almost. Well, look, I, w I wish we had more time. You'll have to come back because we've got so many things to talk about in education. Yeah. But we appreciate you being here today. We're going to have some guests up next talking more about early childhood education. Thank you. But before we go to break, see if you can answer this question. True or false, early childhood education programs lower the odds of children needing special education during elementary school. matters. Did you correctly answer true? According to a study co-authored by one of our next guests, average Smart Start funding in North Carolina was linked to a nearly 10% reduction in special education placements in grades 3, 4, and 5. As I mentioned, our next two guests um, have a keen interest in early childhood education. We have Jim Hansen. Uh, Jim is the regional president for PNC Bank. Um, and Dr. Kenneth Dodge, uh, a return guest to Education Matters. Uh, Dr. Dodge is the director of the Center for Child and Family Policy at Duke University. And, and really one of the sort of leading experts on early childhood education in, in the country. So thank you both for being here. We appreciate it. All right, Jim, I know from talking to you, um, 
PNC Bank is very interested and invests uh, a lot in terms of your uh, you know, community investment, uh, philanthropic giving, employee giving on early childhood education. I got to ask, investing in kids before they go to school, they're a little young and they can't be customers yet, right? They're not ready to be employees or customers. Why, why does PNC Bank care so much about early childhood? Well, they, they may not have a formal savings account, Keith, but we hope they have a piggy bank at home and start saving uh, the banker in us. But, uh, you know, it's, there are future employee, there are future workforce, there are customers, there are customers workforce. And, and I think as the superintendent you know, touched on, uh, if you don't start early and have them ready, it's what we've realized and we've made a commitment over, we're 13 years into this commitment and $350 million commitment to early childhood and making a difference in the lives of these children to prepare them. And there's more and more discussion, obviously, as, uh, as this gets talked about and, and other business partners that are coming to the table through the business roundtable and helping yeah, support a, the that's efforts. That's a serious investment. So you're, and, and I know, and I've, and I know I've, you know, I've seen some news coverage. You've worked with some other uh, uh, CEOs, not just here in North Carolina, but nationally on this issue, right? That's right. And, and we, uh, we put our, our you know, the millions in grants, but also the time our employees put in. And you know, here in North Carolina, in the last five years, our employees have volunteered 12,000 hours in early childhood centers, wow. making a difference in the lives of young children. That's fantastic. Well. Dr. Dodge, um, I, I, we, I know your studies, uh, read your studies, and you've got a new one that just came out that you were a co-author of, um, all about sort of, you know, we're investing a lot of money, private yeah. sector is investing money, the state, federal government's investing money. Um, what's the state of the research? What is, it, yeah. what is it telling you about those investments? Well, as you know, there's controversy in the field about whether early, early childhood learning programs work and have lasting effects, especially pre-kindergarten studies from Boston, Oklahoma, North Carolina show positive impact that lasts. But studies from Tennessee show that the program fades out and the effects fade out. So I was part of a task force that was charged with reading all of the studies to see how can we resolve the contradiction. What we concluded was that every study is probably correct. All of these studies are correct. And what differs is the programs themselves. So the programs in Boston, Oklahoma, North Carolina have lasting positive impacts, and Tennessee's program does not. So I talked with the Commissioner of Education for the state of Tennessee, Candace McQueen, mm -hmm. about what's going on in Tennessee. She told me that uh, she had visited many classrooms, and she learned that there are very few children in Tennessee who receive pre-kindergarten program. And so when they come to kindergarten, the kindergarten teacher is faced with a challenge where some of the children have benefited from pre-K and many others have not. And that kindergarten teacher has to reteach those very basic skills. And as a result, the kids who had pre-K flounder and the others catch up. Okay, so, so what you're saying, it really is about program structure. So you feel, Absolutely. you certainly, it's one of the things that being from North Carolina, uh, and we've been an, a leader in early childhood, and your That's research right. shows that uh, you know, our programs do work. There's two things that are important. First is the quality of the early childhood program, and second is the continuity between the early childhood program and what happens in elementary school. Fortunately, in North Carolina, we have that alignment uh, John Pruitt, who created the MORD for NC Pre-K program, also works in DPI under the superintendent and makes sure that there's alignment between what happens to children in their first five years of life and what happens when they enter elementary school. Well, this must be encouraging to, to hear. I mean, you're someone whose company's putting some, um, some bucks behind it. You've got a new initiative that was announced um, to, to drive even more resources. And tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, so we partnered with DonorsChoose.org, and, and the genesis is we think about, we know that teachers pull money out of their own pockets, and DonorsChoose.org helps K through 12 teachers access support to uh, fill in supplies and other things that teachers pull out. What we realize is that uh, pre-K was not part of that conversation as much. There were some pre-K teachers in there, but Head Start did not have, classrooms did not have access to it. And so we worked with Donors Choose to flash fund all requests in pre-K in the state of North Carolina. We also have Head Start classrooms with access to it now. And so our ask and what we're doing is matching any donor support to those classrooms, pre-K or Head Start in North Carolina, dollar for dollar. So for the teachers listening in those classrooms, put the request in. There are people that want to help support you in the classroom efforts to make a difference and we, in these children's And we've lives. got links on the on the, the public school forum website, ncforum.org, uh, to the information about donors choose and about uh, PNC's uh, uh, program. We've also got links to your reports. Um, now, uh, uh, last question, we only have about a minute left. Uh, Policy-wise, I mean, what is uh, what do we need to do in North Carolina to make sure that these positive benefits continue? You know, 200 years ago, when we first formulated education policy in this country, the best minds thought that children's learning didn't start until age seven, the age of reason, and as a result, we started public schools that began at age seven or eight. Today, the science tells us children begin to learn even before they're born. We, but we have no system to formulate how to help children learn from the time they're born up until kindergarten. So North Carolina can be a leader in the nation by developing an early childhood system. That's great. Well, look, thank you both for being here. Good information. We appreciate PNC Bank and what you're doing. And Dr. Dodge, always a pleasure having you. Some of the best uh, research we have out there. So thank you both for being here. We're going to take a break. And after that, this week's Leadership Spotlight. Each week, Education Matters spotlights individuals demonstrating exceptional leadership in education in North Carolina based on nominations from you, our viewers. This week, we spotlight a friend of mine, Ralph Capps, President and CEO of the Wake County Boys and Girls Clubs. Boys and Girls Club is a, a youth development organization. Our mission is to inspire and enable all young people, especially those that need us most, to realize their potential as responsible, productive, and caring citizens. It's a place where someone's gonna pay attention to them, that's gonna get after them when they don't behave, but also encourage them and support them along the way. It's the relationships that these kids build with the staff that make a difference. Our staff become to, to so many of these, uh, these kids. Uh, is that kind of that mentor or that person that they, that they don't wanna disappoint. Or if they, if they fall short, they hate to go tell them they fell short. It means a lot for the kids to see that people in their community um, give back and actually care. It's not just the, the part-time and a few full-time staff that we have here that they see every day. To see people, um, community leaders, businesses, organizations, they see them in the club having hands-on experience with them. It really means a lot to know that people that they don't even know care about them and their, and their success. And the kids would probably say we make them do their homework every day. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we make them, but they do their homework every day. 
And uh, so they'll, they'll have a period where they will come into the education, in the learning centers or whatever, and have that opportunity to do their homework. There'll be staff in there who will help them. Uh, and so we make a big deal of education. One of our youth of the year uh, last year was speaking about his experience and what the Boys and Girls Club meant to him. And he said, my family, we're long on criminal records and short on high school diplomas. And he said, I will be the first person in my family to, to graduate from high school without a police record. But you can look at the statistics of the number of kids who, when they start failing grades before long, the next thing they do is they drop out and you hear a lot about the school dropout to prison pipeline. When you can keep a, a young person in school and they can move from one grade to the next on time and can graduate with a plan for the future, you have really impacted their, their lives in a very positive way. Learning doesn't just happen in the classroom. If you know someone who deserves to be recognized, visit our website, ncforum.org, click on Education Matters, and you'll find a link to nominate someone in your community. After the break, this week's final word. I mentioned the crossover deadline earlier. In some ways, crossover marks halftime of the legislative session. After the deadline passes, we have a pretty good sense of the priorities for the House and the Senate, and based on who sponsored a bill, we know which ones have a good chance of becoming law. So what's the halftime report? When looking at the first half, there are some promising developments. In teacher preparation and recruitment, we saw a bill to establish a new teaching fellows program. There's also encouraging proposals for streamlining and improving our teacher licensure process and supporting early career teachers. We also have serious proposals to help fund much needed school construction. On the flip side, however, was the very public battle over the K-3 class size cap. It brought back unpleasant memories of other protracted budget fights where teacher assistant jobs and driver's ed programs were hanging in the balance. The amended House Bill 13 does de delay implementation for a year, sparing hundreds of teaching jobs for now, and senators pledged to address specialty teacher slots next year. But they did leave out a pretty important part, actual funding. And to be honest, it didn't help to have a senator accusing school superintendents of playing politics and withholding information. How the 2017 session will be remembered in terms of education remains to be seen. The key ultimately will be the state budget. The governor and House and Senate leaders have all endorsed further pay hikes for teachers, as well as long overdue raises for our principals. They've also promoted key investments in areas like digital learning and early childhood education. But there are key differences too, particularly in the amounts and the timing. Unfortunately, the ugly fight over specialty teacher jobs and class size caps does not bode well for a smooth second half. Folks, I think we can do better than this. We should not have another session where anxious, anxious teachers have to wait months to find out if they have a job. School superintendents shouldn't have to start another school year without an approved state budget. And parents and children shouldn't have to worry about their favorite classes and teachers being defunded. Here's an idea. How about we fund education first and let the special interest and lobbyists be the ones waiting around, not our children and our teachers? That's it for this week's show. Due to programming preemptions, we'll be taking a spring break until May 27th when we'll return with new episodes. 
There's a whole lot of time and drama left, so stay engaged and keep watching Education Matters.